May 9th, 1995. I was 11 years old. It's Tuesday night, and guess what it was? It was revival at my little Baptist church. Y'all ever been to a revival before? Good times. Um, and uh, just a few hours before, this is a little country church, I had met with my pastor and the visiting preacher that came in. don't remember his name. I remember he looks like Richard Dreyfuss. That's all I knew. And we prayed with him. And he, uh, I accepted Christ into my heart. And that night at Revival, my job, what I was going to do is that I was going to walk down the aisle and, and receive Christ, make my public profession of faith, as we called it. And so I did, and let go of the pews, palms sweating, scared to death, walked down the aisle and prayed. And then the next week I was baptized. It was Mother's Day. And for all intents and purposes, that's the point when I knew that I was saved, that language of saved was, was introduced into my life. And, and I had the right beliefs. I believe essentially that Jesus died on the cross uh, for my sins so that I could go to heaven when I die. And I believe these truths to be true in my brain. And so for my understanding at that point, that was what salvation was. I made an intellectual assent to a set of beliefs and ideas and that made me saved. Um, what I did not know was what am I supposed to do between that moment when I walked up front and got baptized and when I died? I mean, all I knew of the Christian life between those two points was, you know, the basically don't drink, cuss, chew, or date girls that do, um, <laughs> vote for the right people, and just generally be nice. You know what I'm talking about? Like, just don't cause much trouble. Just be very Christianly, don't have sex before you get married, um, you know, just the, the typical stuff. That's all I really knew of life between the point that I came to faith in Jesus and death, because if salvation was only this experience in heaven when I die, I didn't know what was really supposed to happen in between there. Now, that was my experience. I'm sure it may be many of your experiences. If you grew up in a Bible belt setting, if you grew up in church, um, maybe that was some of your experience as well. And when you get a whole bunch of people like that, that that know that salvation is primarily about an afterlife experience, and we don't really have any context or understanding for what life and faith look like in the here and the now. You get the Bible Belt. You get cultural Christianity, uh, this faith that is essentially a set of intellectual beliefs disembodied from real life, and we call that faith. And, and it's into that idea, the, into that spiritual mess, that James is writing a letter, this book we're studying, he's writing a letter to some people that seems like, just based upon what we're reading, that they would fit in right very well with that mindset in this 21st century reality. And he speaks these words that we read earlier and begins to bluntly pull apart our ideas about what faith actually is. So let's look at this here. In James chapter 2, verse 14, it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? What can be inferred by this passage that we've just heard is that James is writing to some folks that believed that intellectual belief about God was the primary understanding and experience 
of faith. Now, if you've been anywhere around the Christian faith, you might be thinking as you hear these verses that this may contradict some of what I've experienced and what's taught in the scriptures because all throughout the totality of the passages of scriptures we've read, it says that salvation, we don't get that by doing good stuff for God. We get that by grace through faith. In fact, that's what it says in Ephesians 2. Paul tells us, it says here, for you have been saved by grace through that faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not from works, so that no one can boast. And that's foundational for our faith and understanding of what it means to have salvation and redemption is that God's grace extended to us in Jesus, this gift of faith that we receive, not our work, but his work as the foundation of our faith. That's what Paul is making clear. That is what it means to be saved, is that we receive his work. Life change, then, it's, it's a result of a continual receiving of the benefits of the work that Jesus has already done and living out that gift of grace continuously. Not just an event that happened at one point in our lives, but an entire life of receiving grace. And that's good news, isn't it? It's good news because I don't want to live in a faith where I have to compare myself to other people or to this standard that I'm never going to be able to meet. I cannot live to that standard. You cannot live to that standard. Whatever that standard is, we're all setting some sort of standard and then failing that standard all the way. It's a good thing that salvation comes by grace and not by my works. But Paul, if we just stop there, we miss the crescendo of this little passage because right after he tells us that we're saved by grace, he says this, for we are his workmanship Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of, a, ahead of time for us to do. This is pretty mind-blowing. Number one, the verse there for, for workmanship is the same word we get for a piece of art, a masterpiece. This is what God is saying. And each and every one of us is created as a, his masterpiece for good works, which it says he actually has planned ahead of time for us to do. That for each one of us, God actually knows what good he wants you to do in this world. Doesn't that kind of give you a sense of relief? That there's not this, uh, this uh, I have to come up with everything that I'm supposed to do and change the world, but God in every one of our lives in Jesus already knows all the good he is calling us to do. That to me is both a challenge and also a real relief because I don't have the brain and capacity to come up with all the good things I'm supposed to do. Thank God that he has gone ahead of me, has gone ahead of you, and has given us a plan for how he wants us to change. And so into this reality of what Paul is saying about salvation and grace and works, James comes with this challenge. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if we claim to have faith but do not have works, can that kind of faith save him? So we have to ask, is this contradicting what Paul just said? Is he saying that our works are actually what save us? Well, no. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, is that when we receive Jesus in faith, the natural fruit of our lives is good works. 
And so if we look at the fruit of our lives and see that, wow, I'm not entirely sure that the life of Jesus is coming out from me, the life of good works that he has prepared for them, then we have to start asking the question, maybe I don't have the kind of faith that the Bible is talking about. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He says, you'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. In other words, our lives, all of us, we are designed to produce exactly what our life is doing right now. Whatever is in us, whatever is in the deep soil of our hearts is coming out whether we like it or not. It's part of what is experiencing life in our hearts. And so if we believe all the right things, that's important, but the fruit of those right things that we do believe should be made manifest in our lives. It's why at the end of the passage, James says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So the hard and necessary work that you and I have to do today as we hear these words from James is to ask ourselves about the vitality and the aliveness of our own faith. Is it producing the life that Jesus is, is, is coming out of us or is our faith, as James says, dead? How do we know if our faith is dead? Well, he gives us some clues here in this passage we just looked at. The first thing we, we notice about dead faith is that dead faith is full of good intentions and right opinions. Good intentions and right opinions. He says in verse 15, listen to this, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you say to him, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? I mean, just think about that picture for a second. Walking by someone who is starving and saying, God, bless you with all the food you need. And then walking away. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has blessed you, that person, with all what they need. And you are that blessing. <laughs> right? You are the one that's been equipped and seen that need. He's saying, if you walk by and just say, man, I really hope you do okay in the future, that if we see that and we walk by that, then, then we're relying on good intentions and right opinions instead of what we actually need to be doing in writing this out and living this out. This is a challenge custom made for our 21st century because what we love to do is we love to get on Facebook and Twitter and all these places and get really pumped up and angry about things, right? All these causes, you know, these pet causes that we want to get so furiously excited about and those people, but how often do the things that we get excited about on social media, the things that we rail against, how often is there actually action connected to those things? Or do we do nothing more than be a keyboard activist? We type the right things. We know that people know that we have the right opinions, that people know that we're angry about the things that we're supposed to be angry about, but that's just all we ever really do. There's no action connected to the passion of this issue. If we don't care about those actual needs and put them into practice, then James would say to us, 
This is dead faith. It was one of my favorite conversations when we had our last Pampering Pathway showers down, shower downstairs. I, I, I have to hide in the, uh, the kitchen downstairs because there's not supposed to be any guys around. So they make me come and, and, and sit up and then I, they, they, they basically exile me and I can only listen. Um, it's really sad. And they get to eat all the fun food and have fun. And I sit back there. No, it's good. It's awesome. But I was listening into the conversations and it was awesome. I heard this one lady ask one of our folks like, are you guys just wanting us to come to your church? And I don't even know who it was, but I heard them say, no. <laughs> like, if you come to our church, great. But that's not what we're doing. We're doing this because we are loved by God and we want to love you. This is our way of showing love to you. We have no ulterior motive of making sure you show up at this service. And, and I could tell that, the, that the, a little bit their mind was kind of blown that that we actually cared about the actual physical needs of their lives and not just the fact that they're going to be a butt in the seat next week. Oh, I loved it so much. So dead faith, it's full of good intentions and right opinions. The second mark of a dead faith, dead faith, it relies on intellectual, theological correctness. Verse 19 puts this very clearly. It says, you believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you know who has the best theology in all of the Bible? Demons. Whenever you read through the Gospels, the people who know who Jesus is right away and call him out, you are the son of God, you are the most high, are the demons. It's the demons that get it before the actual people do. And so James is telling us pretty clearly, if you rely on your theology alone to save you, on you having the right set of beliefs about who God is, you are actually at the same spiritual place as demons. Thanks, James. And it's not to say that theology isn't important. Believing the right things about God is important. Right theology is important because we need to see clearly who Jesus is revealed to be in the scriptures. But if that's all you have, James would call that dead faith. To be honest with you, this is where I spent most of my life. I grew up in a denomination that put a lot of emphasis on how much we knew about the Bible. And so for a long time, my faith relied on just gaining more and more and more and more knowledge. And I just bought more books and I just studied more. And I, I fooled myself into thinking that my faith was growing because my knowledge was growing. And then suddenly I came to the realization one day that all this information wasn't bringing formation. All of this stuff that I was putting in my head wasn't making its way down to my heart. I only had theology. I didn't really have faith. I knew a lot about a God that I wasn't sure I actually believed in. And James would call that dead faith. So dead faith is, is full of good intentions and right opinions. Dead faith relies on intellectual, theological correctness. And the last thing we see, the last marker of dead faith we see from this passage, it's not as explicit, but is certainly implicit in this chapter and all throughout the book of James is that dead faith is, is self-centered. Dead faith is self-centered. You may be wondering what exactly are these good works that Paul and James is talking about. And I grew up, as I heard this passage, understanding that basically it was mainly focused on personal morality. And it's not 
not focused on that. It's not not focused on us living out our own faith through a moral life of character and God building our personal character. But if you read the totality of the book of James, what becomes abundantly clear is when he's thinking works, he's thinking of the way we actually live and interact with one another with the way we love our neighbors and the way we love our enemies. James makes it clear throughout this passage that the the totality of what he really wants us to know about works is not just the vertical reality of our faith, but what is the horizontal reality of our relationships with one another. Look in chapter 1, verse 27, it says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Then the whole section before the one we've read, it's all about favoritism and not showing favoritism to rich people instead of poor people and leaving poor people on the margins of the church. And he says at the end of this passage, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. It's clear all throughout this book that what God is primarily concerned about in your works that he's talking about is is your treatment of other people. The way you treat people, not only how that are like you, but treat people who are unlike you, the people who don't look like you and dress like you and believe like you, how well you love people seems to be what James really, really, really wants you to ask about yourself. I love Brendan Manning says that the litmus test of our love for God is our love of neighbor. I want to push back against that statement because I want to say, you know what? I read my Bible a lot and I study and I know a lot about him and I have this faith. But it's kind of obvious the more you read this that The more I receive this love from from God, the more that overflows in my love from my neighbor. A a self-centered faith, listen guys, can be very spiritual and very transcendent in the way it does, but I don't want a faith that has this constant transcendent experience if I don't actually love people around me because that's not a faith that looks like Jesus, is it? If that was what we were supposed to live like, Jesus' life would essentially have been spent up on top of a mountain, having this communion with God, this big giant worship service, and everybody would have to come to him and experience this presence of God. But Jesus did not live like that, did he? Jesus went where there was brokenness, and he taught people how to love. He taught people how to experience the love of God and then give that same love of God themselves. Now, I want to pause for a bit and step back from what we're talking about because I need to be honest. When I hear about the disconnect between faith and works, when I hear about the disconnect between what we believe and what we're actually living this faith of good intentions and right opinions and theological correctness and self-centeredness, my attention almost always goes to those people. I start thinking about those 
those dang Christians that put such a bad name on us, these cultural Christians that claim Jesus but go out and they don't care about people. I start focusing on what I see on the news and what I see on social media and I get myself really worked up and angry about how they don't get it, man. They're, they're, those are the folks that claim Jesus, but those aren't real Christians. I get real passionate about that and I can get so passionate about that that it allows me to feel a pulse for a moment and ignore the fact that I don't want to pay attention to my own heart. I don't want to pay attention to what's happening in me. And when I don't want to pay attention to what's happening in me and the disconnect between what I believe and what I practice, what I love to do to fill that gap is just to point my finger at other people. You ever do that? Okay, we got one, good. I'm not the only pagan in here, that's good. And so I can go a long time feeling like I'm experiencing a spirituality with God because I'm relying not on love but on anger, and I can feel anger. Sometimes I can't feel love. Sometimes I don't believe that love, and so I use anger to feel when I don't know how to experience love. And it allows me to ignore my own heart. And James is calling us not to point our fingers at those people. James is calling us to to look inside ourselves, to look at our own hearts. If you go back to what Jesus is, is speaking about us, he says that the overflow of our hearts is where we live. What comes out of us naturally is the overflow of not only what we speak and and how we live, that all finds its way from our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else for it is the source of life. What he means by that verse is, is that there is going to be a flowing nature out of your heart, whether you like it or not. So guard it because everything that's in there is gonna find its way out. The more that you try to, to, to cover that up, the more it's just going to burst out because you and I are heart-based creatures and we will live from our hearts. It will flow out of us. And so the answer today is not a message about how we should all get our crap together and start living this faith right. The answer today is not a message about how these are the five or six steps to help you make that jump from I just believe this to now I'm living it out. The answer today is not behavior modification because that's not the gospel and it's not good news. Many of you, that's been your experience with Christianity. You hear a message like this and immediately guilt, shame, fear comes in your life And you start thinking, man, I wish I could get my act together. Well, that's not the question that we're asking today. It's not how we can get our act together. The question we're asking is what is actually in our hearts? Because if we're noticing that what's coming out of us is not what we desire to be, the question is not how do I change my behavior, it's how do I change my heart because I can't give the world what I'm not receiving myself. I can't give to my wife or my kids or my neighbors or my city group or this church. I cannot give to anyone what I'm not receiving myself. And so naturally, out of my heart, I'm living 
for better or for worse. I love this picture. There's two, there's two uh, big bodies of water near the area where Jesus uh, did his ministry and was born. There's the Sea of Galilee. Here's a picture of the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful, beautiful area. Lush, I mean, just uh, as, as fertile of an area as you can imagine. It was central to Jesus' ministry. You, as you read through the scriptures, you see lots and lots of stories that center around this area and in the body of water itself. But then 62 miles to the south is another, another body of water called the Dead Sea. And, and the Sea of Galilee, while it may be teeming with life, the Dead Sea is um, it's dead. It's a clever name, I know. Um, it's dead because it has so many chemicals and salt and, 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 and lots of stuff that causes there to be absolutely no life within it. And, and there's a reason why these two bodies of water, only 62 miles apart, both fed by the Jordan River, the river that Jesus was baptized in, there's a reason why they are so different. You see, both of them receive from the Jordan River, but only one of them flows out. Only one of them has water that moves out just as much as it moves in. You see, the Dead Sea takes in water, it takes in everything, but it has absolutely no outlet whatsoever. And so all it can do is it receives and receives and receives and receives and never gives, he just dies. It just ends up dead. But the Sea of Galilee, because not only is it being fed by the waters of the Jordan coming in, but it is pouring out all of the things that's within it as well, giving as much as it is receiving, has never been more full of life. It is simply the overflow of what it's already receiving that gives out and allows it to be as alive as it is. This is as clear a picture of what a dead and an alive faith can be, can I can think of at least, is that some of us need to focus on now what we're not only receiving, but if I'm really receiving this, if I'm alive, something's going out. Something's being lived. Something's being experienced by other people besides myself. Not only am I receiving from God, but I am giving of what God is receiving from me. That's all James is saying here today, is that as you receive this goodness, this grace from God, this love from him, if you really are taking that in, that better be going out. And what you don't realize is as that goes out, as that love and grace goes out to your neighbors and to your enemies, that's actually the very thing that makes your faith come alive. The truth is we will love to the degree that we have received love ourselves. And if we don't have anything to give, if you and I are honest today as as I really sense even in my own spirit, if we're honest today and we don't see that love going out to our neighbors, if we feel like our, our faith is dead, the good news is that we believe in a God of resurrection. A God that can bring everything that we are back to life, including our faith. And so today is not a question of what you must do. Today is a question of God Where's my heart? Where's my heart right now? Am I receiving your love from me? Do I believe that love? Have I received the grace of God in me? Because I know when I receive that love, it's just going to naturally 
flow out of me. So it's not about works. It's not about behavior modification today. What it's about is I just need to take in what God, I know you're going to flow through me as I receive it. And so form me by your love. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. These are hard, challenging words. But Lord, they're words we need. And we do not stand in pride or arrogance as if we have it all together. God, today, maybe for the first time in a long time, we take our pointing finger and we put it down turn our hearts and our lives inward and ask simply where's my heart? How is my heart? God, I pray against the spirit of guilt and shame and fear. James is not speaking that over us. I'm not speaking that over us. You are not speaking that over us. You are speaking love. You want to fill us with love so that we can give love out. And our issue today, Lord, is just simply receiving, God, what you have given us in Jesus Christ, this love that laid down its life for us so that we could lay down our lives for others. So we receive that today, Jesus. We receive your love. We pray this in Jesus' name.